So John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 1 through 8, reads like this. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There he made him supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used it to take what was put in it. In verse 7, And Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. And so, Gospel of John, this incredible gospel. We know that the gospel of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the synoptic gospels, speak of Jesus's, uh, for the most part, his ministry up in the Galilee region. But the gospel of, of John is a gospel that speaks, and its theme is on the, uh, on the deity of Jesus Christ. And John tells us in you know, this gospel that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he goes on to tell us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth and bring everlasting righteousness. And John presents Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world, the only means of forgiveness of sin, and the only hope for eternal life. And if you were to take this gospel as a whole, it's 21 chapters. If you take it as a whole, the first 11 chapters talk about his three years of his ministry, three plus years. When you get to chapter 12, it takes a shift. It, what it does is it speaks of his last week of his ministry. And because chapter 12 covers his final week, the book at this point till the end of the gospel gets very intense. It gets intense. And as we look at this intense section, as we started here in uh, chapter 12, these verses we just read, what it starts out with is something that is very tender, very loving, and it all begins with a very special dinner. And the stage is set for this dinner, we see, towards the end of chapter 11. What happens at the end of chapter 11? Well, what we have here is you have the uh, raising of Lazarus from the dead, and everybody knows about it. Lazarus become the most well-known resident in the small village of Bethany. Bethany would be located on the backside of the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> and so, word is out. It's in all the headlines that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And the knowledge of the miracle has swept through and become a main conversation in that area and also in the great city of Jerusalem. So the miracle is widely known. And as you even see in, in verse 9 of this chapter, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So everybody wanted to see Lazarus, as well as Jesus. So the dinner is an incredible narrative that sets the stage for the final week of the Lord's life. It's time for the cross now. 
Everything, including his death, is on a divine schedule. And the religious leaders, they had tried to seize Jesus throughout this gospel. They tried to put him to death. We see that in John chapter 5 in a couple of places there where he would heal a disabled man who had been that way for 38 years and they didn't like it. They were just livid about it because he healed them on the Sabbath. And then we see also in chapter 5 that they sought to, to seize him and, and put him to death because he had claimed to be equal with God. We see it in chapter 7 as he's teaching in the temple area. They wanted to arrest him and put him to death. And you get to chapter 11 here, and Jesus comes into the city of Bethany, and he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And it angered the Jewish leaders. And it says there in verse 53 of chapter 11, at the very end there at chapter 11, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And they put out an edict saying um, there that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So they're going to put out wanted posters of Jesus all over the place. The Mount of Olives, Bethany, the great city of Jerusalem. His wanted poster is probably going to be in the post office. And they're out to get Jesus. And Jesus is ready now in chapter 12 to go to the cross because it's God's sovereign plan and it's God's sovereign time to do so. And as we look here about what Jesus is about to go through as we are in chapter 12, we see one person who really understands why Jesus came. And that person wasn't John, the author of this gospel. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James or John. In fact, it wasn't even one of the 12 disciples who had been with Jesus for three plus years all the time. As Jesus would speak to them about his his death and his resurrection, and they just weren't getting it. They didn't understand. They were slow to learn. It wasn't until after his resurrection that they would fully start to understand these things. But the person, the one person, who had great spiritual insight into what Jesus was going to do was a woman named Mary. Now, there's lots of Marys in the Bible, and this is the Mary, I guess you could say, the Mary and Martha fame. We are introduced to him in Luke chapter 10. Mary and Martha were also the sisters to Lazarus. So we begin to see the details of this dinner here as we again read verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There he had made him supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. So here we see it's six days, you know, uh, before the Passover. That would make it Saturday. Religious leaders, they're still looking for Jesus so they can put him to death. So really, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, they're, they're really taking a risk by having this dinner. And, and so we see here, that um, Jesus, and it's interesting too, Jesus never spent a night that last week of his life in Jerusalem except for the night that he was arrested. Now, we get more insight on this dinner in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and also in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and in 
uh, Matthew's uh, Gospel, chapter 26, it tells us that the supper is happening at the house of Simon the leper. Now, Simon was a very common name back then. It was like a name like John. Uh, matter of fact, we see as much as 10 times we see Simon uh, mentioned the name Simon for 10 different people uh, in the New Testament in there. We saw it here in verse 4. But it's not speaking of where, you know, Simon the leper that's having the dinner. It's speaking of Judas' um, father. So Simon was a very common name. The dinner is happening at a Simon the leper's house that we are again told in Matthew chapter 26. We really should refer to him as Simon the ex-leopard. Because, if, you know, he had, we have to conclude he was a former leper. Because if he wouldn't, he wouldn't be having this dinner party if he wasn't. I mean, leopards, you know, they, they were outcasts. They didn't inter- interact with people at all. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They were kicked out of every form of society altogether. They were kept as far away from people as possible because of the fear of catching the disease. And I think we can be pretty sure that he would be healed by Jesus. I think that was the only cure back then of leprosy. So probably, you know, imagine the picture here, guys. The day is over. It would be a time to relax, have long conversations around. It was very common in that culture to have a U-shaped type table. They didn't have chairs that they sat on. They would recline. They would recline on some pillows and and so they would be in a reclining position. And think about this. You know, there's Lazarus. There's Simon. There's Jesus. I would have been loved to have been at that table and having the conversation with those guys, wouldn't you? I mean, that would have been great. So you got Jesus, Simon the ex-leopard, Lazarus the ex-dead guy. And then you have Martha and Mary. You probably have the 12 along, you know, that was with Jesus. You had maybe probably a Mrs. Simon if there was such a woman. And maybe some little Simons running around. You could have had as many as 20 people. Now notice in verse 2 if you're a note taker. It says that Martha served. Martha served. And I want to mention that before we get to verse 3. Because sometimes Martha can get some bad press. And I think that comes out of the account of Luke chapter 10. And we know that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were friends of Jesus. And when you look at the account in Luke chapter 10, it tells us that Jesus was traveling along and he enters a certain village, which would be Bethany. And a certain woman named Martha welcomes him into her house. And it says that she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his word. And then it says that Martha was distracted with much serving. In other words, she stressed out. She stressed me out. You know, I just imagine that Martha wanted everything just right for her Lord as she's serving. That was important for that culture. It's important for us, isn't it? We have somebody over that we want to, that we're close to, a good friend, a relative or whatever. We want things to be just right. So here you have Martha. I can imagine she wants everything just right. But I, I, I can just picture her. and she having flour on her apron. She has a roller pin in her hand. 
She's distracted. Again, it means that she's anxious and stressed out. She's kind of over the top. And she goes to Jesus and she says, don't you care? She kind of lost it. Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I mean, it's like she's going to him and say, are you just going to let my sister sit there and talk about life-changing, soul-transforming, everlasting truth, glorious things, and ignore the fact that the table isn't set and the bread is burning? And where do we find Mary? Here she is in Luke 10 sitting at the feet of Jesus, just like she is here in John chapter 12. She's right alongside Jesus, sitting at his feet, listening to his words, the living word of God. The closer she can get, the better, demonstrating what the attitude of a true believer should be. In Luke chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus said, Anyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them builds his house on a rock. So here in Luke 10, we see Martha's a little obsessed by this serving stuff. And so the Lord would answer, and he said, Martha, Martha. You never wanted the Lord to use your name twice like that. Martha, Martha. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is really necessary, and Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And what the Lord was doing with Martha is he was teaching her, listen. And what he's doing with us this morning is teaching us a lesson as well. And it's this. You can't substitute doing for God with being with God. And you can't substitute service to God for fellowship with God. That's the lesson that the Lord gives Martha. And that's the lesson that he gives to us this morning. And I think, and I'm sure that Martha would learn that lesson because when you go back here to chapter 12 of John's gospel, his attitude is different, or her attitude is different. It's an attitude of graciousness and thankfulness. She expresses her love for Jesus in her labor, in her noble service. And Martha was a doer. That's how she was hardwired. And it's the same for some of us. And I thank the Lord for doers. Jesus said in Matthew 20, Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible honors service. And Paul speaks of serving, the hardest service, in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, where he says, as he gives us the spirit of service, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Heartfelt service. To the Galatians in chapter 5, 13, he would say, by love, serve one another. We are called to be servants. Called to be servants of the Lord and servants of each other. And Martha's service is elevated because she loves her Lord and she loves the people that he, she is serving at this dinner. And I believe here in chapter 12 she recognized that as noble as service is, hearing from the Lord himself is a higher calling. So we see this heartfelt service of Mary, 
or Martha, what about Mary? Well, chapter 3 tells us about Mary as we look at that humble, humble sacrifice of Mary. Verse 3 says that when Mary took a pound of very costly oil spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. I really love verse 3. I love verse 3. And here's the thing. Verse 3 doesn't give us a lot of theology. And don't misunderstand me. Theology is important. And verse 3, this verse doesn't give us a lot of insight into doctrine. Don't misunderstand me. Doctrine is important. But what it does is it just gives us a description of Mary's affection for Jesus. And it shows in her sacrificial, complete, unrestrained love. And hear my heart on these things. Because sometimes some of these things I'm about to say, they can get muddled in my heart and stuff. And may we always be reminded of the fact that Christianity is based on the life and the character and the claims and the promises and death and resurrection of a person, Jesus Christ. And as the way of the world kind of has influence on the church and, and um, you know, churches can have more of a tendency of, uh, to take Christianity and say that its ethical teachings and its theological concepts may be true for some, but maybe it doesn't have to be true for others, and that's okay. And so what they do in that is they make Christianity one competing religion among many from which to choose from. The Word of God speaks of and points to and declares the person of Jesus Christ. So our faith isn't based on comparing the teachings of Christianity to other religions, but instead it asks the question, how does a man, how does a woman relate to the person of Jesus Christ? And I've said this before. Christianity isn't about Christ coming to earth to teach bad people how to live better. It does do that. Christianity is about Christ coming to earth to raise those who are dead spiritually to give them new life through a relationship with him. And Jesus made it clear on, to, the, to Paul on the road to Damascus that the focus on how we all relate to Christ because he would tell him that he would be the one that he would use to bring the gospel to the world and he would open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they would be able to receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in him Jesus always made himself the central issue he would say to the Pharisees in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Knowing God through Christ is the essence of Christianity. And you guys know the gospel. If you don't, pay attention. Because sin has separated us from God. Yet Jesus went to that cross to die for our sins and to offer forgiveness and impute his righteousness on us so we can stand before him and we can have a right relationship with God. And you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You come by faith and believe and you receive it by grace. It would be Jesus that would pray in this 
Gospel of John in chapter 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And God would make known to the prophet Hosea his greatest desire, and that is that you and me, that we would know him. And that he wants to restore to us an intimate relationship. And he wants us to know him so intimately that we become like him. We become like him. And he's given us the spirit and his word to accomplish this. You know, John, when he wrote his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 6, that we ought to walk as he walks. And as we look at John chapter 12 here, Mary gets it. She gets it. She takes a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. Matthew's gospel says it was an alabaster job. So the house is filled with all this fragrance, you know, just overwhelming, I could imagine, the house. And this fragrant oil we see in Scripture, it would be used in funerals because there was no embalming to battle decaying bodies. It would also be used, just a little bit of it, a drop or so, if somebody would come to a gathering, they needed a little freshening up. They didn't have showers. You know how we can get cleaned up today before we go to a dinner. I remember talking to a middle school teacher, and she said the worst class that she had was the class where a bunch of boys would come in right after having PE class, and they were all sweaty and, you know... And the room would get a little ripe, you know. <laughs> they didn't have showers. So certain perfumes, just a little would be enough to freshen up. Mark's gospel says Mary just smashes his alabaster jar and opens it and it went on his head. And here in John's account, it said it went down to his feet. Then she loosens her hair, which is something that women did not do in front of men, especially in that culture. But she can't help it because she's driven by her love and her heart is speaking. This is love that knows no limits. There's no holding back her expression that the love she has for her Lord. It's extravagant. It's humble. It's generous. She gave everything she could. It was an act of honor. And she was honoring the one that was going to die and rise again for her salvation, to bear her sin. And led by the Spirit, no doubt, because she spent so much time, where? Sitting at his feet and taking in his word, the living word of God. And you might be here, somebody might be here listening to this and thinking, that sounds all nice, Pastor John, just sitting at the foot of Jesus and, What does that have to do with me today? Well, we all know that the Lord is speaking to us today, this morning, through his word. In a real sense, we sit at Jesus' feet when we take in his word. And we have to consider Mary's devotion. Look, if you, like I, want to be a spiritual, insightful person, you first have to be a spiritually listening person. And I know I'm not perfect at this all the time. 
But we have to ask the question, when you open his word, do you really, really treat it as if it's the very word of God sent to you from heaven? Or do you listen to the word passively when the Lord is, you know, the word is being taught? Do you have a real desire to apply it? In a very real way, you and I are sitting at his feet right now. And we do that every time we open up our Bibles. Those disciples, you know, they were slow to learn. But she understands it. And she wants to prepare him for his death. And she does it with this costly perfume, costing a year's worth of wage. You know, there must have been just a stunned silence in the room. Well, we know that the silence didn't last long. We read verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used it to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Leave her, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. So, again, get the picture here. Here's Judas. He has calculator in his hand, you know. Why wasn't this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii, again, a year's wage? And why didn't we give it to the poor? Mark's gospel tells us that the other knucklehead disciples chimed in too. It says that they were indigent, which means that they were literally, means literally to growl in displeasure. Verse 6 says simply that Jesus, Judas said this because he was a thief. He didn't care for the poor. Matter of fact, right after this event, Judas would go to the chief priest with his plan of betrayal. All Judas did was care about his own selfish ambition. And things aren't always what they seem on the surface. It would appear that Judas was the spiritual one. And Mary was the frivolous, wasteful one. Judas was thrifty and compassionate. He really cared. Mary was silly and she lacked wisdom. But the very opposite was true. Judas was looking out for his own interest. And the thing that moved Mary so deeply was Jesus himself. No leftovers for Christ. She would always bring him the best. And I often have to check my heart to see if I'm giving him the best that I have to offer. And it would be Jesus in the scriptures that would call Judas the son of perdition, which literally means the son of waste. I believe the most wasted life in history. And I like what verse 7 says. Verse 7 just says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's done a good deed. She's done, she's done it in an excellent way. And he says, it's not a waste. Lavish love towards me is not a waste. And he would tell him, you always have the poor with you, but whenever you wish you can do good to them, you know, but me, you're not always going to have me. I'm going to the cross. And Jesus isn't being snotty about this whole thing about here. What he's doing is he's giving us another simple principle. 
Given to the poor is important. Deuteronomy 15.11 says simply, give to the poor. We should give to those in need. And I pray that we would never be indifferent to that. And we should minister to the poor and care for the poor. Given to the poor is good and necessary. But what Jesus is saying and what he said here was worship is always better because true worship will lead to caring for those in need because it comes from a motivation of love for our Lord. You know, Mark's gospel, when it talks about this account, says about this, she says about Mary, she done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And as surely I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. We're talking about it this morning, aren't we? 2,000 years later. It's not a waste, Mary. It's not a waste. And there are those that we are around. We have a world that will look at us as believers. And they're saying, you mean that you're going to go up to a camp, spend three days ministering to high school kids? Take off work? What a waste. You're going to come to church on Sunday morning. A lot of football games are going to be coming up. You're going to miss out on them. What a waste. You give your time. Give some money. Give some effort to the church to bless others. What a waste. The world will look at you and me And they will say, the things that we do for the Lord, why are you doing these things? What a waste. And this picture here, it tells us that just as Mary, we do what we can. We do what we can. And it is never a waste when you do what you do for the Lord, when it's motivated by a right heart. For what? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. And so we have an awesome, awesome commission. And we have an incredible thing that we can do in our lives. And that is to be that display that shows the world that God is a God of love. And God cares. And that we can be in light in this world that we're in. And as we come to the communion table, I just, I would hope that we just take some time to reflect what it is that really Jesus did for us on the cross. That he came down and he he was that perfect sacrifice and shed his blood for you and me so that we could have life and have it eternally with him. And so we're going to do that. We're going to come to the communion table, but it is never a waste when we want to remember, you know, and we're motivated by the right heart to bring glory to God. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for these truths, these incredible truths that you give us. And I pray, Lord, as we come to the communion table this morning, that, Lord, we know the communion table is for the believer. And I pray, Father, Lord, that you would just, if there's anybody out here, we gave the gospel in this message. If there's anybody out there that has struck a heart, I would say 
they would, they would be willing right where they're at right now to say in their heart, Lord, I want to come to you. I give you my sin. I have sinned against you and I just come and lay it out before you, Lord. And I ask that you become Lord of my life. Become my Savior. And that you impute your righteousness on me, Lord. That I can have right relationship with you. And I de- desire, Lord, to follow you all the days of my life. And that I know that it comes by faith, by believing, Lord. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. But it is by your grace I come. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that if there's anything that we need to lay out to you, lay in front of you this morning, if there's any sin, anything in our hearts that isn't right, Lord, if we just need to come to you and just pour out our hearts and our needs, whatever it is, that we would take this time, just a little bit of time right now, we would do that as we take these communion elements. And we pray this in Jesus' name.